Welcome back to another episode of Tailgate Till May. I'm your host, Stephen Gorgie, and I'm excited to be back for episode number two. We have week one of the college football season in the books. We got week two ahead. It's starting to feel a lot like football weather here in beautiful Chicago, Illinois. Had to wear a sweatshirt this morning walking the dog, which is a little bit new for me spending the last, I don't know, seven years in Atlanta where it's typically still like 90 degrees this time of year. So getting used to that, but I think I'm making my full transition into Big Ten man, if you will. Uh, I spent last Saturday, week one, the early slate of games, or as I now have to get used to calling them, the 11 a.m. games, being in Central Time, at an awesome outdoor bar in Chicago, a ton of TVs, uh, able to watch all the, the early slate of games. But I was sitting there, and you know it was a little bit overcast, got that gray Midwest sky, Uh, I had jeans on, again, something I'm not used to to doing on Labor Day weekend, spending a ton of time in Atlanta, living in Atlanta for the better part of a decade. And I'm sitting there, got the overcast guy, got jeans on. I'm watching a 0-0 Wisconsin-Penn State game, which is my sloppy stakes game of the week brought to you by Trefani's. But I'm sitting there watching that, and I'm like, man, it does not get any more Big Ten than this. So I think I'm making my full transition into being a quote-unquote Big Ten man. But you're not here to listen to me talk about the weather in Chicago and the, the sweatshirts that I'm wearing and, and all that. What you're here to listen to is some football talk, and that's what I'm here for as well. Um, I thought week one was an awesome opening week. Excited to see what the rest of the season holds. Since this show comes out a little bit later in the week, typically we're going to drop it on Thursdays or Fridays. This is going to be more of a look-ahead show than a look-back show. So while we're in the heart of football season and until basketball kicks up here a little bit, how I typically want to start each show is with some sort of bigger picture topic. Maybe it is a little bit of a look back at some trends from the previous week. Uh, maybe it's focusing on you know one really big game for the upcoming week, kind of like we did with uh, Georgia and Clemson on the, the opening episode. Uh, but when I, I want to start off with some sort of bigger topic. Then we'll get into the what I'm watching segment and what I'm betting segment. So I don't want to get too deep into all the games that happened last weekend, but big picture, sitting back, watching all those games, I felt like last week was a really good encapsulation of all the things that makes college football special. On Friday night, we had Charlotte beating Duke. Over the weekend, on Saturday, we had huge upsets. We had the Big Sky Pac-12 Challenge where Montana beat Washington. Nobody saw that coming. We had... Fresno State going to Austin Stadium, playing Oregon close. We had Louisiana Tech playing Mississippi State close. Of course, we had the huge primetime matchup with Georgia and Clemson on Saturday night with Georgia's just all-world defense looking like they're going to be a real problem for anybody that crosses their path. We also had some some more regional games that were, were interesting. Not huge upsets, but... My alma mater, Maryland, I thought played a really fun game versus a regional rival in West Virginia. Uh, you had Iowa and Indiana, and, and I think I mentioned at the top of the show, I was at an Iowa bar for uh, the early game. So when that game 
kicked at 3.30 Eastern time. Uh, at the end of the early slate, that place was starting to fill up with some Iowa fans. You could see the black and gold everywhere. Uh, Chicago has a ton of Indiana alum, a ton of Iowa alum. And you could kind of see, you know, that's a really important game for, for Iowa and, and Indiana as well. It was a, it was a ranked game, but uh, maybe even more important than that, or a regional game where that, that meant a lot to a lot of people. Iowa and Indiana, not necessarily the biggest rivals in the world, but that game is still is important to each of those fan bases. And it really got me thinking, you know, part of the reason that I think we love college football so much and, and what makes it so special and different is kind of the decentralized, regionalized roots of the sport. I think that's a, that's a huge part of what makes it so great. So, you know, way back when all these schools came together and said, hey, we're, we're going to play football, it was, it was regional. There was schools in the Southeast playing schools in the Southeast, schools on the West Coast playing schools on the West Coast. And, you know, as it developed over time, it was still very much a regional sport that we started viewing through a national lens. And I think that regionality is something that makes it really cool where you can look around the country on any given day, any given Saturday in the fall, and you can see the kind of regional differences and the unique aspects of of football culture in each of those regions because how we celebrate college football in the Pacific Northwest is very different than how we celebrate college football in the Midwest. And I think that's part of what makes the sport so cool is that you, you have all this regionality, you have these games like Maryland, West Virginia, that's very important to specific fan bases in a in a certain part of the country, but might not be something that, you know, somebody living in Iowa even even knows about or somebody living in Southern California, Maryland, West Virginia doesn't mean much to them. But when you turn it on, even if you are in Southern California, you kind of get a glimpse into to what it means to be in that region. And I think that's part of what makes college football really special. So as I started thinking about this, I also started thinking about kind of bigger picture college ball and what's been going on in the off season with conference consolidation, if you will, with Texas and Oklahoma uh, announcing that they will leave the big 12 to join the sec. And what is very clearly happening right now is that Texas and Oklahoma have decided to tell their counterparts in the big 12, the Texas Techs of the world, the Oklahoma States of the world, the TCUs of the world, that, hey, we feel like we have more in common with Alabama and Georgia than we do with you. There's more money to be made if we can get into a conference with Alabama and Georgia. We can have these big-time games on TV, and, and we are a better fit with the Alabamas, the Georgias, the LSUs, the Tennessees of the world than we are with you. And how that kind of plays and reads to me is – Texas and Oklahoma telling Oklahoma State and Texas Tech and Baylor and TCU and Kansas State that essentially you don't matter. And when I think about that and I think about the future of college football, I kind of look ahead, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30 years. But I kind of see this future where, you know, not only does Texas and Oklahoma say that to their counterparts, but that at some point, Ohio State and Penn State look around and say, hey, we have a hell of a lot more in common with Alabama and Oklahoma than we do with Illinois and Maryland. Why should we stay in this league with them? And just as Texas and Oklahoma 
abandoned the rest of the Big 12, uh, the, the eight remaining schools that are now, you know, kind of on the outskirts outside looking in when it comes to anything involving major college football, I can very easily see a world in where the biggest schools that generate the most revenue and care most about football in all these power five conferences decide just to join together and create some sort of super league, very similar to what uh, almost happened in European soccer earlier this year that, that didn't end up happening. Whether it's a 16-team Super League or a 24-team Super League, I can very, very easily see that happening. And just to kind of give you an example of what that might look like, you know, I could see it being four teams from the Pac-12, USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington. The two Big 12 teams that are headed to the SEC, Texas and Oklahoma. Seven teams from the SEC, Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Texas A&M, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, uh, you got Notre Dame as an independent joining this. Then maybe five or so from the Big Ten, Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Nebraska, Wisconsin. And then five from the ACC in Clemson, Florida State, Miami, North Carolina, and Virginia Tech. Now, you know, it's not hard to envision a scenario where maybe Miami gets left out and Iowa is in or North Carolina's left out, UCLA is left out. One of these schools is left out. Somebody else comes in. All of these scenarios are out there. Uh, I'm not here to squabble about who would be in this 24-team Super League and who wouldn't, but I think it's a really poss- really realistic possibility that we're headed towards this 24-team Super League. And when you hear it, it's kind of easy to think like, damn, that would be pretty awesome to have those 24 teams playing uh, week in and week out, you know, have an eight-team playoff, maybe you have a 13-game conference season or a 13-game season an eight-game playoff, uh, you know, something along those lines. You get some ridiculous matchups every year, like Ohio State, Georgia, Penn State, LSU, Michigan, Auburn, uh, games like that, Texas, USC, Clemson, Texas A&M, games that we don't typically get to see. And I think it's really easy to be like, yes, that would be awesome. It's also really easy to see how a bunch of TV networks would be salivating to get their hands on that package. You know, I'm not a, a sports business expert by any means, but I could see a league like that having a TV deal that compares very favorably to to what the NFL gets today. Uh, I, I I really could. You know, that is a that would be a coveted coveted TV package. However, I think in the long term, a move like that would be really bad for college football. And it's something that really scares me. What happens to the rest of college football? If you create a a 24-team Super League, what you are saying is that Kansas State football has no value. West Virginia football has no value. Houston football has no value. And I just think that is inherently not true. Now, are there as many... West Virginia fans as there are Alabama fans? Absolutely not. Are they going to create the kind of TV revenue that that Alabama would? Absolutely not. But I think what makes college football so great, as I said at the top of the show, is all of this together. It's that you can watch Charlotte take down Duke on a Friday night and then watch Alabama and Clemson go head-to-head on Saturday night. And you know what? 
that win for Charlotte fans over Duke was just as meaningful as Georgia's win over Clemson was for Georgia fans. And I think when you strip away everything in college football and and really distill it down to just the 24 programs that care most, that will invest the most money, that have the highest caliber of athlete, I think you're, you're losing a lot. Because if you just want to watch the best football, the best athletes, the NFL is there for you every Sunday. The NFL, it's not a debate that there are the best football players in the world play in the NFL. But yet, there are millions of people who watch college football every Saturday, and there are a lot of people who tell you would tell you that they prefer watching college football over the NFL. So it's it's not just the caliber of play that it, it, it draws people to this sport. And a huge part of it for many people is that they feel like they have a real connection with this sport through the school they attended. If you are somebody who went to Oklahoma State, there's no way that you're going to watch this Super League every Saturday and just jump on the Oklahoma Sooner bandwagon. That's not how this works. There's real loyalty to these schools and these programs, whether it's because fans attended the school, whether they had family attend the school, whether they just live close to the school. And, you know, oftentimes these loyalties go back generations and generations and generations. So although Oklahoma has a huge fan base, although Alabama has a huge fan base, although LSU has a huge fan base, I think that maybe in the long term, despite the TV, the massive TV contract that a Super League like this would be sure to generate, I think you would end up pushing away a lot of people who are fans of college football right now because they no longer feel like their team is involved in this sport. You know, their team would be playing at a completely different level, uh, a completely different division. However it would work, they would not be involved in the highest tier of the sport. And you are not going to have Mississippi State fans and Ole Miss fans say, you know what? We love being in the SEC for all those years. We hated these teams for a long time, but I guess it's time for us to just choose whether we want to be LSU fans, Alabama fans, or Auburn fans. It's not going to work that way. So you're going to have a lot of people who feel like there's no reason for them to even watch this this league, watch this sport. And I think if you divided up college football in that way, you would lose a lot of what makes it special. It reminds me a lot of people when they're talking about rivalries where there's a school of thought that's like, I want my rival to be so, so, so bad and never be in contention for anything. And I just want them to be as bad as possible. There's another school of thought that, you know, it's actually a lot more fun when both schools in a rivalry are at the top of their game and that game is meaningful. And as a diehard fan, I would understand why you never want your rival to have success. But as an outsider looking in, it's a lot better when both schools are productive and good and and that game is meaningful. I can, you know, tell you I have fond memories growing up of watching Florida State, Florida 
but I haven't watched that game a whole lot recently because Florida State hasn't been relevant. They haven't been good. And, and you know, Florida's had their ups and downs, but they've been much more consistent and it's typically been a Florida blowout. It's not an appointment game for me anymore. That's not something I'm going to watch. The same thing for goes for Georgia and Georgia Tech. There was many a year where Georgia Tech was able to beat Georgia, and that was always a game to watch. Not so much recently, not since Kirby Smart's come to town, and, and not since uh, Georgia Tech has been going through their rebuild with Jeff Collins. So, you know, I, I think there needs to be somebody that looks at college football as a whole and has the interest of college football as a whole at their heart. Right now, we have a lot of people who is who are only interested in their particular school, their particular conference, how to make the most money for, for their particular school, how to really stick it to their rivals the, the most. And it, you know, I think about Texas A&M going to the SEC and how they didn't want put up such a big stink about Texas joining and it's it's that same mindset it's we want to we want only bad things to happen to our rival we never want them to be good we do not want to be competitive and in some cases we don't even want to ever play them again and i just think there needs to be somebody who can look more holistically and say to everybody you know what alabama you do run the sport to a large extent. Clemson, you do run the sport. And you do probably have a lot more in common with Ohio State at this point than you do Mississippi State. However, you need to keep Mississippi State fans engaged. You need to keep Oregon State fans engaged. You need to keep the West Virginia fans engaged. You need to keep Houston fans engaged because what makes college football the special sport that it is, is we have these 130 teams that play every week. You can watch a million games at a time. You know there's a chance to break through to that upper echelon, no matter how unrealistic it is. And you have programs who know that an eight-win season is really good, and it's meaningful to, to us in our program. And you know what? Beating that regional rival is also just as meaningful to us as winning a national title is to the Alabamas and Clemsons and Ohio States of the world. I truly believe college football is better off together than it is separate. So we need somebody, and I don't know who that person is, who can really look holistically at this thing and say, Hey, let's not trade some short-term dollars for what I think would ultimately be a long-term failure and really kill a lot of the essence of this sport. Okay, so on to some of the actual games on the field from the previous week. The one other larger thought I had watching week one was, man, Alabama has really ruined this for the rest of the country. Alabama has just become such a dominant force in this sport, especially the way they start season. They, of course, beat Miami 44-13 to to open the 2021 season in just another dominant non-conference display by the Crimson Tide. Not that there ever was any doubt that Alabama would be a contender this year, but if there was, I think that was put to rest pretty quickly on Saturday. So 
back to Alabama's dominant performance in season openers. I looked back to the 2016 season and uh, I, I looked at every year where they started uh, with a non-conference opener. Uh, so that excludes last year, of course, and they played the, the all SEC schedule, but dating back to 2016, they have now played uh, five non-conference power five teams in their opener. The, Average score in those games is 43 to 9, with, of course, an average margin of victory of 34 points. That is an absolutely absurd way to start the season. So I think Alabama creates this expectation for everybody else around the country that, well, Alabama beat a, beat Miami by 30 points. Why are we struggling with this team? In addition to that, Alabama just doesn't lose until late when they do lose. So again, dating back to 2016, their first loss of the 2016 season was in the national title game. Their first loss of the 2017 season was in the Iron Bowl. In 2018, their first loss was once again in the national title game. In 2019, they were 8-0 before losing to LSU. And then last year, they went undefeated. So I think that also just makes people forget that a lot of times teams do struggle early in the season before coming back to do some really good things. So, for example, Clemson, this isn't an early season loss, but Clemson lost to Pitt in November of 2016, and that was the year they won Dabo's first national title and Clemson's first national title since, since the 80s. When Ohio State won the national title in the inaugural year of the college football playoff, they lost to a Virginia Tech team that would go 6-6 six and six in the second game of the year. And by the way, they lost that game by two touchdowns. JT Barrett threw three interceptions, and he would go on to finish fifth in the Heisman voting. And then last year, just look back, last year, Oklahoma lost back-to-back games to Kansas State and Iowa State before running off the next eight to win the Big 12 and get a Cotton Bowl win over Florida a Florida team that was very much in the college football playoff conversation and, and played Alabama as tight as really anybody in the country did or probably could last year. So I say all that to say Alabama has just set ridiculous, unrealistic expectations for everybody else in the country. And just because Alabama wins their openers by 30 every year, and just because those openers are against the likes of USC, Louisville, Miami, doesn't mean that everybody can do it. It also doesn't mean that your team's going to have a bad year because you play a close game in week one or two, or even that you drop a weird one to a team that you shouldn't, like Ohio State losing to a 6-6 six and six Virginia Tech team. And the team I'm really thinking about, there's two teams I'm really thinking about when when I say this, and they are going to be fe- featured prominently in my what I'm watching this week. So let's start off with the early games, the noon slate Eastern, now 11 a.m. Central for me, and the TV one game I'm watching there is Oregon traveling to the horseshoe to take on Ohio State. And these are two top 15 teams that both had challenging games last weekend. So Ohio State kicked off the season on a Thursday night in Minneapolis, taking on the Gophers, breaking in freshman quarterback C.J. Stroud, and they really did struggle in the first half. They were down 14-10 to 10 at halftime to Minnesota, and Minnesota was right there in that game. They hung tough. And then in the second half, what you saw is all of Ohio State's talent come out on the offensive side of the ball. 
this was a one-possession game in the fourth quarter. It was 31-24 Ohio State. And with just under 10 minutes to go, Travion Henderson took a little screen pass from C.J. Stroud and took it 70 yards for a touchdown on a third down. Travion Henderson was the number one running back recruit in the country in the class of 2021. That's the kind of talent Ohio State has on offense. Fast forward a little bit later in the, in the fourth quarter, Minnesota actually goes down the field and answers with a touchdown, a nice nine-play, 75-yard drive. What does Ohio State do? They come back, and two plays later, Chris Olave takes it 61 yards for a touchdown, which ices the game. It puts Ohio State up 45-31, and they never look back. The game is essentially over at that point with just under five minutes to play. That is the kind of talent that Ohio State has. That's the explosiveness Ohio State has. If you look away for a second, if you go to the bathroom, you go to get a drink, you go to get a snack, Ohio State might score. They could be anywhere on the field, and they might break an 80-yard run for a touchdown, a 75-yard pass for a touchdown, whatever it may be. That's where Ohio State really thrives, and I think that's what you saw in that opener against Minnesota, despite some of their struggles in the first half and despite some of their struggles on the defensive side of the ball. Ohio State is a supremely talented offensive football team. In fact, Bill Connolly's SP Plus analytics system rates the Ohio State offense as the number one offense in the country right now. So moving on to the Oregon side of the ball, they beat Fresno State 31-24. They were up early. They had an early 14-0 lead. Then Fresno State kind of chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. They eventually actually tied it at 21, and then Oregon ultimately pulled it out 31-24. More importantly than Oregon's struggle with the Bulldogs was the fact that they have potentially lost Kayvon Thibodeau, their best defensive player, the best defensive player in the country, the potential number one overall draft pick in next year's NFL draft. Uh, he he left the game against Fresno State. He's day-to-day right now, and we don't know whether or not he's going to play against Ohio State. If they don't have Kayvon Thibodeau, that pass rush is very different, and I think they're going to have a very hard time against Ohio State. We just talked about how talented that offense is, and one of the best ways to disrupt any offense, I'm not breaking any news here, is to put some pressure on the quarterback, and that's exactly what Kayvon Thibodeau provides. Without him, they might be in some trouble. I think, in general, that Fresno State game doesn't concern me nearly as much as it might some other people because last week on the show, I said, I think that this might be a game where Oregon is looking past a pretty good Fresno State team because this Ohio State game is so big for this program. Now, all you've heard since Cristobal arrived at Oregon and took over as the head coach was that he was going to try to build an SEC-style program. And from a recruiting perspective, he sort of has done that. Oregon's finished 6th, 11th, and 7th nationally, according to 24-7 sports over the last three recruiting classes. And they're now number 9 in the 24-7 composite talent rankings, which rates the talent on each team's current roster. So from a talent perspective, Oregon is there in that group of teams that, that can be elite. 
What Oregon needs to prove now is that they are elite, that they're among that group of elite teams with Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and maybe Notre Dame, who year in and year out compete for the college football playoff and national championships. And I think that's important to understand because from what I have seen and heard and read on the college football internet is that Mario Cristobal and his staff really view this game as a coming out party for the Oregon football program. They think this is their chance to announce to the entire college football world that, hey, we're Oregon. This is what we do. We don't take a backseat to anybody. We'll go to the horseshoe. We'll go to the big house. We'll go down to Tuscaloosa. We'll go to Death Valley, either Death Valley. It doesn't matter what. We can compete with anybody. We're Oregon and we're here to win national championships. And I think when you view everything within that context of how important this game is for the program, even to the coaching staff, you get a better understanding of how they might have come out a little bit flat-footed against Fresno State last week. Their focus might not be entirely on Fresno State, and it might have been a little bit more on this Ohio State game. Having said all that, Oregon still very much needs to answer the question of whether Anthony Brown is the quarterback to lead this team to where they want to go. And right now, I frankly don't know the answer to that, and I'm not afraid to admit that. But I think this game on Saturday is going to go a long way towards determining whether he is or isn't the guy to take Oregon to that next level. The line for this game is Ohio State minus 14. The analytics tell me that it's dead on. My gut says that Oregon comes out really fired up with something to prove, and they make it a game, especially in the first half, and especially if they have Thibodeau at full strength. However, I don't know if they're going to have Thibodeau at full strength, and I'm not using that as an excuse, but if the analytics tell me this is dead on, it's just a gut pick on my end, and we're not sure if Oregon has one of the best players in the country at full strength or not, then I'm going to go ahead and just pass on playing this game. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to enjoy it. I, If I'm being honest, am wanting to see Oregon come out and establish themselves and really show that they are on the level of Ohio State because I think the sport is just so much more interesting when we have more than just four or five teams that are rotating between making the college football playoff and winning national championships. And I think from the West Coast right now, Oregon is that best hope at really emerging as a true contender, a true challenger to the elites of the sport. Okay, so what else am I watching at that noon time slot? Well, honestly, there's not a whole lot. I really hope this Oregon-Ohio State game is a good game because there ain't much else that I'm interested in watching. I might check out the end of the Illinois-UVA game. That's an 11 a.m. Eastern kick. Uh, And then the other one I could check out is Florida at USF just to see if there really is going to be a quarterback controversy with Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson ahead of that Alabama-Florida game next week. Uh, I didn't watch any of it, Florida play last week, but I heard Anthony Richardson look really good and that there's some clamoring for Richardson to potentially take over the job from Emory Jones. They have Alabama in week three in the swamp, so may check out Florida USF just to get a peek at what Florida looks like in their quarterback situation, but I expect that one to be an absolute bloodbath. 
Moving on to the afternoon and the 3.30 time slot. So for TV1, there's only one option for me at this time slot. And that's going to be number 10 Iowa traveling to Ames to take on in-state rival number 9 Iowa State for the Cyhawk Trophy. Now, this game actually isn't until 4.30 Eastern time, and you can see it on ABC. So we're going to have to find something else to watch from 3.30 to 4.30. But this is the game of the afternoon time slot. It's the first time that both teams have ever been ranked when they play one another. And not only are they both ranked, but they're both ranked in the top 10. These two teams performed very differently last week. Iowa comes into this game fresh off a 34-6 thrashing of Indiana that actually put them in the very early lead for the Big Ten West title as they're now 1-0 in conference, while their main rival on that side of the division, Wisconsin, is 0-1. So they're already a game up there. They're feeling really good about themselves, and they really could not have asked for a much better way to start the season. On the flip side, you have Iowa State, which is the team that I think came into the year with a lot more hype. They beat Oklahoma last year, they made it to the Big 12 championship game, and their head coach, Matt Campbell, is now seen as a hot commodity across the world of college football. Any big-time program that has a job opening right now is at least considering Matt Campbell. If you look at almost any message board after a team loses, you will see fans of that school listing Matt Campbell as a candidate for their job, whether it's realistic or otherwise. Everybody in the sport of college football right now wants to get a piece of Matt Campbell. And in large part, that's because he's done such a fantastic job going to Ames, Iowa and turning the Cyclones into a winner. Now, Oklahoma has high expectations of their own this year, but there has definitely been chatter that if there is one team in the Big 12 who can really compete with Oklahoma and potentially take the crown from them, that the team that could do it would be the Iowa State Cyclones. Now, since Campbell took over in Ames, they do have a little bit of a history of rocky starts to begin the season. His first year, 2016, They lost that same Northern Iowa program, 25-20, to start the year. And then in 2019, Northern Iowa took them to triple overtime before they finally pulled it out. And then last year, their best season under Campbell to date, they actually started the year with a 31-14 loss to Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns. So early September clunkers are are nothing new to Iowa State. I do feel like Iowa State is a team much like Oregon where that comparison to Alabama and how Alabama starts the season by just dismantling people is really just unfair to them. Iowa State, like we saw last year, can go on and have a very good season, but they didn't play a great game against Northern Iowa. And it doesn't really influence me a whole lot as I look ahead to this Iowa game. So what am I expecting as we look ahead to this game? Well, I'll tell you this. I expect it to be a low-scoring game that probably is decided by a touchdown or less. More likely, a field goal, in my opinion. 
Iowa has dominated this series as of late, but the past couple years have been really low scoring, really close games. The game wasn't played last year because the Big Ten had the conference only schedule, but two years ago, Iowa won 18 to 17. The year before that, Iowa won 13 to 3. These are games that are coming down to just a handful of plays. These are both really good defenses. According to SP+, Iowa has the number one defense in the country. Iowa State, also a very good defense in the top 30. They finished last year uh, number 11 in defense in SP+. So these are some really good defenses right here. They both thrive at stopping the run. Uh, Last year, Iowa allowed 2.8 yards per carry, while Iowa State allowed 3.2. And both are, on the offensive side of the ball, really lean on their running game. Uh, Brees Hall of Iowa State was the national leader last year in rushing yards with over 1,500 rushing yards. And he had a 5.6 yards per carry. Tyler Goodson at Iowa had a 5.3 yards per carry last year, and he's off to a hot start. He had a great game against Indiana. So you're really looking at strength on strength with these teams. They both like to run the ball. Both defenses can stop the run. And then when you look at the quarterbacks, Iowa State seems to have a pretty clear advantage there. Brock Purdy is now a senior. He is the guy that, along with Matt Campbell, have really put this Cyclones team on the map. He had a very good year last year. He was 15th nationally in ESPN's QBR metrics. So, you know, he was essentially a top 15, top 20 quarterback in the nation last year. He's a guy that can also use his legs a little bit, run around, make some plays, and buy some time. So Purdy is a really solid quarterback there for the Cyclones. On the other side of things, the Hawkeyes have Spencer Petrus, who started all year for them last year and was essentially a bottom-tier Big Ten quarterback. He had a completion percentage of 57%. He had a yards per attempt of 6.4, which were both 11th in the Big Ten out of 14. He had a passer rating that was also 11th in the Big Ten. He had a 9-to-5 touchdown-to-interception ratio, and he had the 10th best QBR in the Big Ten, again, out of 14 quarterbacks. So you're really looking at somebody who performed at the bottom tier of the Big Ten last year versus a quarterback in Purdy who was top 15, top 20 nationally. So having said all that, you would probably expect me to say that I think Brock Purdy is going to be the difference in this game, that Purdy is going to outduel Petrus, and that uh, Purdy is going to take down that mighty Iowa defense. However, that's not where I'm going with this. Yes, I do think Purdy's better, but I think the Iowa defense is just an extra, extra salty unit that really stands head and shoulders above any other unit on the field in this game. I think Iowa's defense is going to keep this a low-scoring affair. I I think Iowa State's defense is very good as well. I think this is overall just going to be a low-scoring affair, maybe something in the the 20s. I think the total for this game is right around 40. Yeah, the total for this game is 46, so the odds makers expect it to be a low-scoring game as well. Iowa is actually getting four and a half in this game. So for me, 
that's the play I'm going to make if we're going to jump into gambling a little bit here. I'm going to take Iowa plus four and a half on the road. They have won the last five games against Iowa State. They have the best defense in the country. Uh, Two of the last three years, this game has been decided, decided by one score or less. And in a rivalry game like this, a low-scoring game, we think it's going to be close. I will take the points, those four and a half points, especially when you're giving them to the team that's dominated this series. I do think there is some psychological component to finally getting over the hump and beating a team. And, you know, whether it's real or not, at some point it becomes real if the team's involved believe it's real if Iowa goes into this game with that confidence that they know they can beat Iowa State because they've done it every year since they've been in Iowa City then I think that matters so maybe this is a year that Iowa State does get over the hump Brock Purdy has actually only faced off against the Hawkeyes once before so maybe senior Brock Purdy has the magic they need to Finally get that win, but from a gambling perspective, give me Iowa plus four and a half all day. It's going to be a low-scoring game. It's going to be a tight game. Maybe Iowa State wins. Maybe Iowa wins, but either way, I think it's going to be decided by a field goal or less, so give me the Hawkeyes with the points. As far as other games during that afternoon time slot, the 3.30 Eastern time slot. There's not a whole lot of options to tide you over until this game kicks off at 4.30. We do have Cal at TCU on ESPNU. I am a little bit interested to see the Horn Frogs, see how they bounce back from a, a tough year last year and see what they have. Uh, you have number five, Texas A&M, on the road at Colorado. That's on Fox. Might be worth checking out just to see Texas A&M go on the road. Um, And then you have Murray State, an FCS team. They are receiving votes in the FCS poll. They're traveling to take on number seven, Cincinnati. And the only reason I'd be interested in watching that is because I think Cincinnati is a really good team. And I think they have one of the best chances, probably the best chance ever of any group of five team to crash the playoff. So I don't expect that game to be close. But the way Cincinnati started the season last week against Miami of Ohio was impressive. And really, I just think any chance you you get to check out Cincinnati might be worth it. So sparse options there. Probably just flip around and and wait until that that Cyhawk game kicks off at, at 4.30 Eastern time. All right, moving on to the night slate. So the night slate, there's a, there's a handful of good games here starting at 7 p.m. On TV1 for me, I'm going with number 15 Texas traveling to take on former Southwest Conference rival, future SEC rival Arkansas. That game's on ESPN. That's a game I want to watch more for the atmosphere than anything That Texas game is really important to Arkansas fans. I'm sure that place is going to be rocking, and uh, I'll be tuned into that one. First big road game for Steve Sarkeesian and the Longhorns. On TV2, I'm looking at App State traveling to take on number 22 Miami. That game's on ESPNU. We've talked a lot today about how Alabama really took it to Miami last week, and Things get a little easier this week because anytime you're not playing Alabama, 
things are going to get a little easier, but they don't get much easier. App State's a really good program, and I said before that I think Cincinnati has an outstanding chance to make the playoff, but if Cincinnati were to falter somewhere along the way, and they could, they're in a tough AAC, I think out of the Sun Belt, App State, Coastal Carolina, and Louisiana all have great potential to take that group of five New Year's six bid. Uh, whichever one of them comes out of the Sun Belt has a great chance to take that bid. They're all really strong programs, really strong teams this year, and I think this is the the best year ever for the Sun Belt as far as overall top to bottom talent and and talent at the top. So interested to check that one out and see if App State can pull off the upset at Miami, drop the Hurricanes to 0-2. Another game I'll be checking out as well is NC State going to take on Mississippi State on ESPN2. Uh, NC State brings back quarterback Devin Leary. He played early in the season last year. Their offense was very good. He got hurt, and they were never the same after that. I'm going to talk about this one a little bit more when I get to my gambling picks a a little bit later on, but I think this one could be a fun one to watch. I I I could see some points going up on the board here, so I'll I'll check that one out. I'm also going to keep an eye on Missouri going to Lexington to take on the Kentucky Wildcats. That's on SEC Network, 7.30 Eastern Time. Kentucky's really been a rock-solid program under Mark Stoops the last several years. This is year two for Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri. Uh, I'm interested to see how this one plays out. Kentucky looks like they're they're trying to get their offense into gear a little bit more. They've, they've always had a, a rock-solid defense that's been the foundation of that program. I have a, a gambling play that I'll get to a little bit later on this one, but I'll keep my eye on this one as well to see who comes out on top. And then the last game of the of the night session would be Washington going to Ann Arbor to take on Michigan. Washington, of course, coming off the heels of that upset loss to Montana. Michigan looked really good offensively in week one against Western Michigan. But, you know, I, I just have this sneaking suspicion that that loss may not matter a whole lot, that Washington might not be quite as bad as we think. And Michigan may not be quite as good as we think. And then on to the late night slate. And it's a pretty good late night slate here. 10-15 Eastern time. TV1 for me is going to be number 21 Utah. Going to take on BYU on ESPN. TV2 is going to be Stanford. Going to take on number 14 USC on Fox. And then 11 p.m., another game I'll keep a little bit of an eye on, is Hawaii at Oregon State. Uh, Oregon State struggled against Purdue last week, but it's a team that I had some some hopes for being able to make a bowl game. So uh, I'll watch them and see how they can they bounce back in in week two. So that's what I'm watching this week. As far as what I'm betting this week, well, let's start with a little bit of recap of of how I did last week. So last week I gave out nine plays. I went six and three uh, at plus three units. So. If you're somebody who's betting $100 a game, you would have made $300 if you followed my plays last week. And I have another eight plays coming for you this week. I'm going to start off with Florida International minus a point and a half versus Texas State. So the way that I start my gambling analysis every week is I look at what Bill Connolly puts out with his S&P Plus, and I look at which games have a, a differential between what he projects and what the spread is by seven points or more, a touchdown or more. 
I then look at the games that have a differential of three points or more. And I'm not going to play every one of those games, but that's where I'm going to start my analysis. And the games that are off by seven points or more, where there's a differential of seven points or more, I call those my gold games. And FIU minus a point and a half is one of my gold games. SP Plus has FIU favored by 11, which is a nine and a half point differential against the spread. So definitely a gold game for me. If you look at some of the other indicators here, uh, FIU has 59% of the bets, but 91% of the money. And there's some indicators that there's some sharp action with FIU as well. Look, I'm not going to pretend like I know a lot about these teams, but I know that every indicator that I trust, every analytic that I trust says FIU is a good play here. So I'm going to take FIU minus one and a half. Another game that was in that gold tier is USC minus 17 against Stanford. USC is projected by SP plus to win this game by 27 compared to the 17 point spread. That's a 10 point differential right there. Stanford had a really bad week last week. Kansas State took it to them. Stanford dropped from number 48 to number 90 in SP+, and only six teams saw a bigger drop in their raw rating, which went from 3.3 to negative 4.7, and then only Louisville dropped further in terms of ranking. So this was a bad, bad week for Stanford. And early in the season, sometimes some of the predictive analytic systems can kind of get skewed a little bit by one bad week. However, that is not the case with this game. If you look at last week's numbers before that Kansas State game even happened, USC would have been favored by by 19 rather than 27 in SP+. So it wouldn't have been the 10-point differential that we see here. It would have been a two-point differential, but you still have a little bit of a differential there. And, you know, we talked about this last week. Stanford's heading the wrong direction. I bet Kansas State last week, I said they have the most explosive player on the field in Deuce Vaughn, and he was going to wreak havoc on them. He did. Their defense did not show me anything to impress me last week. And I would say USC has more skill and talent on the field uh, with their offense than Kansas State did last week. So I like USC here, minus 17. It's a big number, but once again, I, I trust these analytics. There's a gold game for me, and, and I'm going to bet USC minus 17. Moving on, I'm going to go with the underdog here. I'm going to take UAB plus 24 and a half at Georgia. If you can get plus 14 and a half in the first half, I would take that one as well. Uh, I was only able to see it at 12 and a half. So I'm going with the full game line there. UAB has a really good defense. Georgia, as we all know, have a really has a really good defense. I think uh, that this game is going to be relatively low scoring the total is 46. You're getting 24 and a half points in a game that's expected to have 46 total points. I think that's a good deal. I also think Georgia, there's just no way Georgia can come back out the week after putting it to Clemson the way they did and play with that kind of intensity. It's, it's prime for a little bit of a letdown. Georgia's going to win the game, but I, I definitely like UAB to cover, stay relatively close in a game that doesn't have a lot of points. Uh, I already mentioned earlier, I'm taking Iowa plus the four and a half. Not going to go through that one again. Um, I'm going to go NC State 
over 28.5 points for their team total. I talked before about how Devin Leary got off to a really nice start for NC State last year. He started five games total now for NC State for last year and the one so far this season. In those games, they've averaged 38 points and never scored less than 30 points. On the flip side, Mississippi State has given up an average of 31 points per game and has allowed 28 or more points in 8 of 12 games under Mike Leach. So I'm going NC State over 28 and a half points. Missouri at Kentucky, I'm going under 56 here. Basically, the spread says that this is going to be a a 31-25 Kentucky win. Last year, the game was 20 to 10 in Columbia. Two years ago, it was 29 to 7. And three years ago, it was 15 to 14. That's 30 points, 36 points, and 29 points for an average of 32 points per game. SP Plus is with me as well, as that system is projecting 52 total points compared to the, the spread of 56 points. I expect this game to be a rock fight. Kentucky's bread and butter is defense. That's what they've built their program on. I know they're trying to innovate. I know their offense looked a lot better last week against a a really bad team. But I think when push comes to shove in a conference game early in the season that you know they want to win and really need to win, this is the kind of game that Kentucky has built their program on the past several years of making sure they, they bank those wins against teams that are, that are comparable to them. And I think when push comes to shove, it's going to still be a defensive battle and we're going to go under here. Um, moving on air force minus six at Navy. Look, this is simply a matter of, of betting against Navy again. They were really bad last week. They were really bad last year. Air Force crushed them last season, and I'm going to bet against Navy until they make the numbers high enough that I I can't bet against Navy anymore. So Air Force minus six at Navy. I'm going Arkansas plus seven against Texas. SP plus says this is basically dead on. This is more of a gut atmosphere play for me. This is a huge game for Arkansas. Fans are going to be riled up. Sam Pittman in his first year at Arkansas last year played a lot of teams, good teams, really close. So I I like that aspect of things. And then this is Sarkeesian's first big road game at Texas. Under Tom Herman, they had a little bit of a history of playing down to their level of competition when they were favored. So I, I like Arkansas here. Plus seven. The analytics aren't with me, but this is a little bit more of a gut play. So those are my gambling plays of the week. You know what I'm watching in week two. You know what I'm betting in week two. As a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Gorgon Sports to get all my thoughts when you're not listening to the podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast anywhere that you get your podcast Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more you subscribe, you'll always have the podcast on your phone as soon as it drops. That's the best way to keep track of what we have going on here. Leaving a five-star rating and a review is always much appreciated. Enjoy the games this week, everybody, and I will talk to you all next time. 
This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.